Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Malachi Finn, and today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Danielle Morgan. We are very excited to have you here today. To kick off the episode, can you tell us a bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, your degrees, your position at Santa Clara University, and some of your favorite courses to teach? Sure. Thank you for having me today, Malachi. Um, As you mentioned, I'm Dr. Danielle Morgan. I'm in the Department of English at Santa Clara. Um, I am originally from Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I have my uh, degree from UNC Chapel Hill in English with a minor in African American Studies. After that, I went to Duke University and got my master's in teaching. Um, for secondary education. I taught high school in Durham, North Carolina for a bit and then realized I really loved doing research and working with um, older students and uh, went back to school, got my master's degree at North Carolina State, and then finally went to uh, Cornell University in Ithaca, New York to get my uh, PhD in English with a specialization in African American Literature and Studies. And then I came here and I'm happy to be here. Wow, that's awesome. And congratulations on all of your accomplishments. Thank you. So I know that you're you know, teaching here. Can you tell us a little bit about your favorite courses to teach at Santa Clara University? Sure. I honestly love um, the vast majority of the courses I get to teach, which is a good situation to be in. And some of my favorites um, is the African-American comedy course that I teach, which is English 135. I also really enjoy English 15, which is a course um, that's a major and minor course, a foundations course in the English department based around cultural studies and literary theory, where in my version of the course, we deal with popular culture a great bit and talk about using literary frames to read pop culture and make meaning from that. Um, I also really, really love teaching English 35, which is the Introduction to African American Literature course, uh, where I get to really introduce students to literature. For a lot of students, it's the first time they're really reading African American literature. Um, and, And for some students at Santa Clara, it's really the only time they take a course involved in African American literature, African American studies. So I feel a great deal of, um, responsibility, I'll say, to to try to really introduce them to a variety of different kinds of texts and ways of thinking and ideas about blackness. Um, and so I'm fortunate that um, that I get to teach courses like that. I also really like teaching the LEAD CTW. Um, I love working in the LEAD program. I love working with the LEAD students at Santa Clara, and I feel really fortunate that, that I get to do that. That's awesome. And it's like a very diverse range of topics that you're covering with your classes. And I really enjoy the fact that you're teaching African-American literature um, because I actually took African-American studies intro to that last quarter. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a great class. We looked at, I I believe I told you, The Fire Next Time with James Baldwin. Yes. yes. And we also looked at a a lot of the different documentaries that talked about how even after slavery, they used uh, convicts leasing as a way to, to keep black men enslaved and keep them in that system. And it was very insightful to learn how those I would say ways of trying to reach around the system from that beginning is still uh, impacting us today. And it's it's mind blowing to see how it has really like changed the trajectory of a lot of black men in the United States, so. Absolutely, absolutely. Those intra-level courses are so important because we have to know where we came from to sort of understand even more critically where we're going, why we're in the positions we're in now, and how to make meaning of what our ancestors have already gone through and that sort of ancestral knowledge. So I'm glad to hear that you had such a positive experience in that class. Thank you. So after doing a little research about you, I noticed that you have studied English, literature, and African-American studies extensively throughout your collegiate career. So much so that you earned a PhD in English literature from Cornell University. What sparked your interest in English literature as an adolescent, and why has this area of academia been such a large part of your life? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, and as as is the case with a lot of my professional life, there is a sort of personal aspect to it as well. And so one of the reasons that English literature became an area of interest to me was because, you know, as a as a small child, I just loved reading. I was very bookish. I just could not stop reading just nonstop. My mom would have to come into my room and I'd have a flashlight. She'd tell me to stop reading. I had to go to bed, all of those kinds of, the sort of stereotypical um, sort of nerdy 
kid reading the chapter books in her room. Uh, but even more than that, um, once I realized, and I don't think I really realized this until I got to college, the fact that my interest in African American studies and English literature could be combined to talk about African American literature and how the African American cultural experience creates African American literature, that was when I was really sold. Um, a lot of that came um, once again from my mom, who, um, you know, I, I sort of jokingly talk about the fact that when I was five years old, she sat me down um, and I watched the documentary Eyes on the Prize, which is about the civil rights movement. Um, and it's, it's a really, really powerful documentary, um, but it's really intense. And I was five, and so my mom and I kind of laugh now about like, I'll joke, I'll joke with her and say, you know, I don't think you should have shown me that when I was five years old. And she was like, well, look at you now. <laughs> you become this professor. So right. maybe it was the right choice. Um, but it was this kind of interesting way of immediately understanding my blackness as connected to my family, but also as connected to this broader cultural experience. And so really getting the opportunity, because we didn't have African-American literature classes at my high school, we didn't have African-American studies classes at my high school. Once I went to Carolina as an undergrad and um, discovered, I think the first course I took was African-American political philosophy. And then I took an Afri intro to African-American studies. I think it was 1865 to 1920, something like that. And I just was so engaged. The material felt so significant to me. And it was like this eye-opening moment where I said, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. This is like this kind of literature resonates with me it feel it's so varied it talks about certain experiences that i've had or certain experiences that matter to me and being able to really engage in that um i think has has been life changing for me quite frankly um and so i i love the the fact that at santa clara i get to hopefully sort of foster that experience in my own classrooms and let students who haven't come in contact with this material really see how it can matter to them too. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's one of the main reasons why a lot of students try to diversify the courses they're taking. Absolutely. Because obviously you have requirements, but it's like, okay, well, maybe I should take philosophy and, and these African-American studies courses or learn about Latino history and learn different things and, and change my way of thinking. That's Absolutely. something that I'm really big about is just learning new perspectives um, and just and surrounding yourself around people who, are, who will show you something new and allow you to blossom with them. Right. Absolutely. So, so that's that's amazing. So what was your experience like in the academic setting and how did these experiences shape who you are today? Well, I think um, for one, my experience as an English major um, was similar to the experience of most English majors, which is that it is a predominantly white field. Um, most of the professors um, happen to be white. Most of the students happen to be white. And so there's a sense of trying to figure out where and how you belong in the mm. discipline. Um, I loved, you know, the, the sort of canonical, traditional um, white male authored books that we were reading. You know, I was really in high school. I remember being really, really big on the Scarlet Letter, just finding that to be so like evocative um, and, and the imagery being so beautiful. I remember really loving Catcher in the Rye and all of these kinds of, you know, the, the classics that we're supposed to read. Um, and I found myself thinking, you know, this, these books are really great. Uh, I wish there were more people in it that I could kind of relate to more immediately. Right. You know, as a teenager, there's an aspect of Holden Caulfield and Catcher in the Rye that, of course, you relate to. He's moody. He, you know, he thinks he's smarter than everyone. All of these kinds of things that we all understand as as um, adolescents. But I wanted to see more characters who who sort of represented experiences that I had had and could analyze them and help me process things that I had gone through. I didn't really get that in high school, even though my high school teachers were really great and, and allowed me to kind of talk about my own personal experiences in my writing. The, the writing that we were reading didn't have those same experiences. Um, once I got to college and at Carolina, once I really started taking African-American literature courses, that was when the world opened up for me. That was the first time I read Their Eyes Were Watching God, which right. is, you know, this, this novel... Um, you know, that was written almost a hundred years ago at this point. Wow. Um, and, you know, is about this young woman, um, the uh, daughter of, you know, certainly a granddaughter of, of 
um, an enslaved woman, all of these things that weren't, you know, it wasn't a one-on-one connection with my life, but reading about Janie and reading about Janie's kind of burgeoning womanhood and what it meant to be a black woman and what it meant to have this sort of to think about feminism and what feminism might have looked like, you know, for me, I guess, 80 years ago or however long ago um, that text was to when I was in college. It was like my eyes opened for the first time. And then moving from Zora Neale Hurston to Toni Morrison to Alice Walker, um, moving to, you know, to Zadie Smith, to these more contemporary authors as well, and and realizing there are people out there who are writing about my experiences um, that I just hadn't read before yeah. and that there's this whole world of opportunities that I am now being introduced to and a way to think about what that cultural moment looks like, how the literature influences the culture, how the culture influences the literature and my connection to all of that, I think was, was a really sort of, it was a powerful experience to have. And I feel fortunate, you know, I, I wish I had had that when I was a bit younger. Um, but I am very, very grateful that, you know, at Carolina, I had the opportunity to discover those courses and then sort of tailor my um, English major around a lot of those courses, you know, but you have your prerequisites, of course, but sort of filling in the gaps with the literature that mattered to me. And, um, and then taking these African American studies courses as well, and being able to bolster my sort of literary interest with thinking about the cultural moments in which the literature emerged. Yeah. And I also like wanted to delve deeper into African-American literature. In AP literature of my senior year of high school, we also read uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora mm. Neale Hurston. And we read Beloved by Toni Morrison. Yes, and those absolutely. were my introductions, I would say, to black literature. Um, and it was like, wow, there's these smart women that are writing these stories that is, I would say, unusual or just rare right. for most people, especially that they're not like having this opportunity to see how life was for black women Absolutely. during this time facing not only the oppression by men, but oppression by white men and just people that are looking towards them and, and making their position be fulfilled before they can decide, I would say. So it, it's, it was amazing to read that. And I've also looked into, um, I read during this summer, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison and yes. Native Son by Richard Wright. And those were yes. both great books as well. And just telling the story of black men trying to succeed in an environment where it's just very difficult, especially during that time where you have the collegiate uh, background that's limited to you if you're in certain areas, right. if you're in the South, or if you go to the North and this is this new experience where it's still racist, but it's not right, as right. it is in the South. So you have to take a different approach and it's shocking to see a new world. So I think those types of books and just reading more so about our culture, like you said, is very important and impactful. So, uh, yeah, it's amazing. So absolutely. As most of our listeners know, in November, you will be publishing your book, Laughing to Keep from Dying, African-American Satire in the 21st Century. Can you tell us how this book came about and what inspired you to write about African-American satire? Absolutely. And again, this connects to that, that sort of personal aspect and the more professional aspect. So starting with the personal aspect, part of why I wanted to write this book is almost as a tribute to my uncle Kevin, um, who I love very much, still love, um, who passed away in 1997 when I was, um, you know, a, a teenager at the time. Um, he uh, had a big hand in raising me. And part of what that raising looked like was that he would have very sort of sophisticated conversations with me about African American comedy. Like he was the person who introduced me to, um, you know, inappropriate ways, the stand up comedy of Eddie Murphy, where he'd like show me, you know, scenes from Raw, scenes from Delirious, mm -hmm. fast forward through other parts, um, where we would start talking about sketches that were on Saturday Night Live. I remember going to Blockbuster Video and he would um, check out, you know, Coming to America, he would check out. Um, trading places and we would watch these together and just have these really interesting conversations about like why this was funny to us and why it might be funny to other people. Um, and so as an adult, you know, after he passed away, I just kept thinking, and he was a writer as well. Um, he, he was a journalist. And so the fact that we had had all of these conversations, I felt 
um, I wanted other people to kind of participate in this conversation and hear some of the things that we were thinking about now that I had um, more of this sort of academic frame for talking about these things, you know, much different from when I was, you know, um, 10 years old or however old uh, when I was having these conversations with him. So I wanted to do it in part to sort of remember him and to think about those conversations as they existed during that time. Uh, the, and, and because I keep seeing in the 21st century, since he died in 97, he didn't get to see all of these kinds of critical texts that I think he would have loved. He never saw Chappelle's show. He never saw Get Out. He never watched Insecure. He never saw all of these things that every time I watch them, I'm like, man, I really wish I could talk to him and see what he'd think about them. So so part of it was thinking about my Uncle Kevin and thinking about a way to sort of honor those conversations. Uh, the other part is just the genuine moment in which we're living. I started writing this. The, the book is, is sort of interesting to me because I started writing it in the midst of this Obama presidency mm. um, where Dave Chappelle was missing in action. You know, he, he left. We didn't know if Dave was coming back, where he was going to go. And then when I submitted my first full draft, shortly thereafter, you know, Donald Trump was elected and Dave Chappelle returned to comedy. And so it, it was sort of, it felt necessary to really think about this kind of changing scope of what comedy means to us now that we know sort of in some ways kind of inherently we understand that okay comedy has been a critical piece of protest and self-making and um, identity in black cultural experience from you know from slavery to now but what does it mean why do we keep going back to that why are we looking at people when somebody like Trump is elected, why are we looking and saying, well, what does Dave Chappelle think about this? What does Chris Rock think about this? Why are we turning to these comedians who are supposed to make us laugh to have these kinds of critical insights on our cultural moments too? And so I really, I think that that the moment sort of rose up and met me in some ways, and it, it felt very much like okay, you've got to talk about this right now because everyone is looking at the comedians and asking them to make sense of this. Everybody is looking to think about what comedy can offer us, how comedy can heal us, but also how it can give us direction. And I think that was an important sort of broader frame for thinking about the meaning and the possibility inherent in satire. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that one of my first introductions to African-American satire is in Living Color. I used to watch those tapes. Yes, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I loved In Living Color with the Wayans Brothers. I used to watch those tapes because my family, you know, has the VH tapes from when they were younger and I was watching In Living Color, uh, Martin, like just yes. those those black classic comedies. And it was like just seeing all of the different stand-up comedians, like you said, highlight things like at that time it was the LA riots for Rodney King. That was one of the prominent topics and just like those different types of things that they're able to bring up and indulge in in a way that most people can't. Like, I think that's why comedy is so special, especially to those who seek it, is you get an opportunity to hear about something in a way that you haven't seen before. Absolutely. And make things that might not be funny laughable, because <laughs> that's that's the beauty of it, right? So I'm glad that you're touching on that, and, and it's definitely amazing. So what were some of the challenges, either external or intrinsic, that you faced while going through the writing and publishing process? This is a, this is a really good question, um, and I'm happy to talk about it because I hope that, that you all become aware, I guess, that your professors are also racked with self-doubt <laughs> in the way that you may be as you are thinking about writing. I remember that the first hurdle I encountered was I wanted to get my PhD. I thought, you know, God, I really love research. I love writing these papers, but who a dissertation, like there's no way I could ever do that. Like that's just, that's too, like 200 pages. That's impossible. There is no way I could do this. And, you know, I didn't have you know, before I started my PhD, I didn't have kids, I wasn't married, you know, any of these things that often take time away from work. I just was like, that is, that's too much. Like, it's impossible. And then once I got into my PhD program, I realized that I 
loved the material and it suddenly became possible. It became a process of taking it bit by bit and piece by piece. The real intrinsic challenge became thinking about what I was writing as worthwhile mm. and thinking about it as as being something that anyone would be interested in other than like me and my mom, <laughs> right? That that anybody was going to read this or or care about it. And that I think is is the biggest challenge and and you know, especially as a black woman in academia, there's not that many of us around like that you know, even as black women are getting PhDs at huge rates. Um, in academia, we're still not getting hired at huge rates in academia. We're still not being published um, at hu- in huge rates at, at in academia. And so finding myself worthy, I think, was really a big challenge until I started getting some external feedback, getting that kind of constructive criticism, seeing how my work was being cited by other people, seeing how my work was connecting with and expanding upon the work of you know some of my literary idols and things like that so really i think the biggest challenge was believing in myself and then finding a way to take the external feedback i was getting and turn that into sort of the internal uh belief that i could actually accomplish this work and that it was going to be worthwhile i feel much better now certainly about um the work and about my ability to have completed it and that it's worthwhile. But it took me a really long way to get there. You know, it, it wasn't like I just kind of woke up and I was like, I got this in the bag. You know, <laughs> I'm just brilliant. I'm so smart. Everyone's going to love this. I still certainly had that sense of, okay, well, is this, you know, what if nobody likes this? What if right. nobody reads it? You know, I feel like I've done enough work to make this you know, worthwhile, but what if nobody else does? Uh, we all feel that way. And hearing other people talk about the fact that they felt that way, when you hear your idol say, oh yeah, I didn't think anybody was going to like this book. And you're like, but this book meant so much to me. <laughs> that I think can be helpful. So so I say this to say, I want students in particular to know we all are racked with self-doubt. None of us kind of wakes up and it's just like, you know, I, I'm the greatest. I'm going to write another masterpiece right now. We're all struggling through it. We're all hoping. We're all tweaking things. We all know that it's going to take some work and some time. And that's part of the process. I think that element of empowerment is really powerful. And I'm glad that you touched on that because a lot of times, as you stated before, people don't think that they can truly do something until they've seen it be done or just have a little push, right? Like you can right. you can have belief in yourself, but there's always that need for external validation. Like, okay, I believe I can do something, but now that everybody else is agreeing with me, it's like, okay, well, I can really do it now. So right. that's the, a very important thing to have people around you that will support you, but also give you constructive criticism because you don't Absolutely. want yes men around you. You might think you're doing really well and then everybody's saying, yeah, it's good. Like that's what happens with a lot of artists. You know, they release an album and it's horrible, but yes, in the studio, but everybody said it was great. Yeah, right? In the studio, exactly. everybody was bopping their heads. So I just, I think that's great that you touched on that for sure. Good, good. So writing and publishing a book is a huge accomplishment and I congratulate you on this milestone. Thank you. How does it feel to be an author? Um, if I mean, honestly, it feels, it feels great. <laughs> and it, I mean, it feels, it feels like it took simultaneously a very long time and a very short time. Right. Um, I feel really humbled at the response people have had about the book coming out and the fact that people are excited about it. I feel really great. Um, also that I'm sort of in this cultural moment where there are a lot of, you know, in, in, sort of the the parlance of academia I'm a junior scholar and what that means is I you know don't have tenure yet I'm on you know on the tenure track I haven't been at it as long as some people there's sort of a cohort of junior scholars who are all doing this work that's kind of based in the 21st century but also looking back at the past that we're all sort of coming up together and so I feel really fortunate to be a part of that sort of collective experience right now and I also feel again that sense of kind of responsibility when I hear students especially black female students talk about what it means to them to see me as somebody who wrote a book um, because again that was the thing for me when I started uh, having classes with black female professors in particular but black professors in general and saying like wait a second there are people who look like me and who have had experiences 
like me. Like there, there are black people from Durham, North Carolina, who are who are teaching, who have their PhDs, who are working, who are writing. This is incredible. Maybe I can do it too. Hearing students say things like that, that has been one of the most incredible moments for me. Um, so when I talk about it feeling great, like I feel like I've worked uh, really hard and I feel a sense of relief in some ways that, that I was able to do this. But I also, it it is much more um, about that sense of representation that makes me really proud that that students are seeing it, that my own daughters are seeing it. My seven year old has been super excited about the fact that I wrote a book. She doesn't, you know, quite know what the book is about and all of that, but she's been really excited that her mom wrote a book. Um, that kind of representation, I think, is really, really. Um, I hope it will be impactful. Um, and what I've heard so far from students has has meant a great deal to me. Yeah. I agree. And, and I like that you brought up that idea of just having representation in this field in particular. And um, something that this comedian W. Kamau Bell touched on that was very uh, insightful was he was saying that his daughter watches this show uh, about a black female doctor. And she's yes, been watching Doc it. McStuffins. Yeah. yeah, she had been watching it for so long that when she finally got to the doctors and, and it was a white man, she was like, you're not a real doctor. Real right, doctors right. are black women. <laughs> And it, that was like, wow, that's hilarious. And it's dope to see like when you and it really shows twofold that for her, it was a great uh, display that multiple people can get in the field and, and it doesn't really matter. But it also shows that if it was a, for white children, when they're only seeing white people in these positions, that they don't believe other people can fulfill it. So it kind of shows right, you how right. that is very possible. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And uh, congratulations again on on writing a book. That's dope. And Thank you're the you. first person that I've met who's an author, so that's amazing. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so you served as the Frank Sinatra Faculty Fellow with the Center mm -hmm. for the Arts and Humanities, working alongside professionals such as W. Kamau Bell and Tay Diggs. How did you get involved in this position, and what was your experience like as the Frank Sinatra Faculty Fellow? Sure. Well, I have to be honest, when I first came to Santa Clara and got the, um, got the job, I heard about the Center for Arts and Humanities and I was like, man, that that's the dream, right? Like to be able to work in the center and to do this kind of public work that, you know, connects the academy to like people who are doing arts and humanities work in practice. Like, wow, I wonder if that opportunity would come up. Um, and then at the end of my first year, so the spring quarter of 2017, I was sitting in my office. I got a call from Marie Brancati, who, you know, bless her heart for this. She she contacted me and she was like, hey, we're thinking of, you know, trying to work with W. Kamal Bell. I know you work on comedy. Would you be interested in participating in some way? And my jaw dropped. And I was like, yes, like what, whatever you need, I'm there. I'd be happy to do it. Um, and then working with, with Kamal was just such an incredible experience because he, you know, has so much, first of all, he's brilliant and he's hilarious, but even aside from that, he's got this kind of practical experience about what comedy looks like and what comedy can do. He's a very thoughtful comedian who, um, punches up. And, you know, if you take my comedy course, uh, we talk about punching up as this idea that comedians are allowed to make fun of people who have a higher status than they do. Like you don't want to make fun of people who are more marginalized than you because then you're just a bully. But <laughs> if you punch up, you know, that's, that's reasonable comedy. We can all laugh. We like it. He's fantastic at punching up and talking to him both in public conversations uh, for audiences, but also in kind of private conversations with him uh, was so crucial in my understanding what comedy looks like and how how we can move from the sort of theoretical realm where I was to the practical realm and thinking about what comedy really looks like as a as a realm for social justice as a realm for um, social change and that was sort of a foundational part of my book so what I can say about working in the center is just that it has genuinely been the coolest uh, one of the coolest things I've gotten to do on campus working with Kamau working with Tay and this really interesting way to make my own work and my own interests connected to the academy but and this is the kind of beautiful part of the center not only is it connected to the academy but the center casts you know on such a broad net that we've also had events that 
are much more public and about sort of the community surrounding Santa Clara and how to make people feel comfortable and at home in um, our Santa Clara environment. So yeah, you know, I, I want, I, and you know, I'll go absolutely on record saying this, I want to work in the center for as long as they will, as long as they will <laughs> let me, uh, because it has just, it, it's sort of my dream of academia that I get to write my scholarly articles and scholarly books and I get to teach you know brilliant students and I also get to feed that part of of my life that's about the more practical aspects talking to um, Kamau about his actual experiences as a comedian talking to Tay Diggs about his actual experiences on the Broadway stage when I've written you know scholarly articles about rent for example all of that has been really really um, important. So the center is fantastic. I love everybody who works there. And I felt really fortunate that I've gotten a chance to participate and work with these these incredible professionals. Yeah, that's awesome. And like, I honestly don't know much about the Center for Arts and Humanities, but now hearing it, I need to look into it more and see like the different shows and stuff. Because like on campus, typically I was just walking back to my courses in dorms sure, and, and sure. eating. So I didn't really get an opportunity to go there since I'm in the business school. But right. Um, I, I would love to see that. And I love the arts and music and, and just seeing how different people can create different types of things that engage an audience and engage the students on campus and tap into different things that they probably weren't even aware that they enjoy. Right. Right. So I think that's an awesome opportunity that you had to, to t speak with these professionals and connect with what you already love dearly to yourself and things that you spoke about that you had with your uncle and just having this opportunity to tap into it once again at Absolutely. this point in your life. So that's amazing. Absolutely. All right. So on August 22nd, you were harassed by campus safety and forced to show proof that you lived in your own home. Can you elaborate on what happened that day and the steps that have been taken by SCU administration to rectify this horrible encounter? Great. Um, so, you know, I posted on Twitter what what took place that day. And I think that my my Twitter story, it, it's the, the same way that I'm long winded in speech. I'm also long winded in in writing. And so I have a lot of details in the, the Twitter uh, thread that I think still really sum up the that experience. What I can say now, um, particularly about being at Santa Clara while all of this is still processing and, and underway is that I have been so heartened and bolstered. Um, and I really, I've been saying this publicly, but I want to, I want to make sure to continue saying it publicly because it matters a great deal by the faculty, staff, and students at this school, especially, especially the students here. Um, I have had students I haven't even taught contacting me and asking how they can help, sharing their own stories of harassment, sharing, um, you know, words of wisdom and well wishes. My faculty colleagues are just phenomenal, especially the ones with whom I already had existing relationships with have just been people who I can call up and, you know, talk to about how I'm feeling, who have offered advice, who have, you know, offered sort of a virtual shoulder to cry on since we can't <laughs> all be actually together. They, I mean, you know, my, my people are contacting me every day, checking on my kids, checking on my husband, checking on me and making us feel really loved and valued in that kind of way. And that has meant a lot because, you know, I don't, I, I can't say that I know for sure what the future looks like mm -hmm. with, with everything that's going on. Um, but I can say that right now, um, my, my people have been working really hard to, to make me feel valued and, um, and as safe as possible. And in a situation that, that still, you know, feels unsafe in a lot of ways, um, and that I'm still sort of processing. Um, I think that people, you know, sometimes wonder if, you know, maybe you can kind of compartmentalize things like this, and and that's not really possible. It has been, it since the 22nd, it is the primary thing that's circulating in my head. And most of my friends who have been through experiences like this have said similar things that, you know, when it happens, this becomes the sort of all-encompassing thing of your life because it's such trauma it's you know scary there's so much uncertainty you don't know what's going on in the midst of you know a global pandemic in the midst of california being on fire in the midst of all of these kinds of questions in the midst of you know my kid distance learning in the midst of us trying to figure out like are we going to be on campus or not all of these questions 
and then this. And so, you know, if I could have chosen for something not to add on to all of this, like I certainly would have chosen to not have another thing. Yeah. Um, but, but again, my big goal with all of these kinds of conversations is really to, to center the experiences of, of other people. And so I've, I, I am glad for that. Um, if that, if that sort of comes out of all of this, that other people are better heard both at Santa Clara and elsewhere, because it's not just a Santa Clara thing. I will feel good if, if other people's voices are being centered as well. Yeah. And it, and it's amazing that you, you know, want to highlight that because even though you were the one that was subjected to this ridiculous and unwarranted pestering, you made it a priority to highlight others. You stated, and I quote, I hope this moment serves to center and uplift the voices of black students on campus. Why was this message important for you to emphasize in that moment? Um, there are a few reasons for that. One is, you know, I, I've said before, and, and it's true, as simple as it sounds, like I've been black my whole life, <laughs> you know, and so I know what this, I know what this looks like at all ages, right? right. I know what it looks like. You know, I was five years old the first time uh, one of my friends said that she could play with me, but she didn't like black mommies and daddies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom's walking down the street towards me at that exact moment. I burst into hysterical tears, you know. Wow. Um, you know, I know what those experiences are like. Um, I know the way racism and racialized language changes as we get older. Um, and I also know what structures and systems of power look like uh, compared to students. I have a great deal of power on this campus. Compared to other faculty and administrators, I have very little you know, power on, on this campus. But within the frame of what took place, so many students on this campus have been talking about these issues right. for a very long time. They have been talking about it before I came. They've been talking about it to me since I've been here. Um, and, you know, if nothing changes, they'll be talking about this on campus long after I'm dead, you know? And I want to use this opportunity because I sort of um, surprisingly got so much attention and such a spotlight on me to say, hey, this I shouldn't be getting all this attention because it's exceptional that this took place or it's exceptional that this happened to me or, you know, because I'm so special and this shouldn't have happened to me, you know, because I'm a, you know, tenure track professor or because I, you know, I went to Cornell, I did this, you know, I've won this award, I did that thing. None of that matters. This shouldn't be happening to anybody. And I keep sort of saying that over and over again. When students are saying that this is happening to them, we should care just as much as when a professor says, hey, this terrible thing happened to me. Uh, What happened to me, I think, seems particularly um, egregious and unwarranted, Uh, but students are experiencing these kinds of things too, all the time, and and saying as much and just not having as much attention. So my job as somebody who did get the attention is not to just say, oh, thank you, you know, thank you all for paying such attention to me and lifting me up, but to say, okay, what, what do we do to lift each other up? What do we do to make sure that you know, these students who are on campus and, and paying so much money to be here are, are going to be safe. What do we do outside of Santa Clara? How can um, academia itself be changed? Because it's, again, you know, this happened at Santa Clara. It happens at Santa Clara, but it happens at every university I've ever been to. It happens at every university in the United States. There are problems with, um, you know, not even just with campus safety, with, you know, uh, students being um, insulted in racialized or racist ways by faculty, by um, staff, by other students, and, and we need to focus on that. It's easy in some ways to say this was one bad thing that happened to one person. It's much harder, but it's, the, it's what we have to do to say this is a bad thing that happens to a lot of people. How do we examine the root of where this is coming from uh, so that it won't happen anymore? Yeah. That's definitely true. And at a time in America where violence and hostility towards black people from those who are supposed to serve and protect has run rampant, it's clear that, you know, these things are still occurring. And obviously, like with the the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the the list just goes on of multiple people that have been murdered and harassed within this year, let alone. And it's as you said, we've been black all of our lives. So this is nothing new, but it's like now it's becoming more highlighted. And I would say another thing that's exponentially increased is the support from 
those who aren't black, like other people of color and also our, our white counterparts who are taking that step to look internally at what it is that they can do to help. And, and try to retract the steps that they may have taken in the past and say like, okay, well now I want to be a better person or now I want to like help those who need it. So I think that right. is an amazing thing. And, and I'm glad that you, that you spoke about that message. So thank you for, for talking about that for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So now here are our custom questions. Um, sure. So what does your ideal Saturday look like? Oh gosh. It, well, I'm going to say uh, pre-COVID, my <laughs> ideal Saturday, um, would involve kind of a late brunch with my family at home. Um, and then my uh, seven-year-old and I would go to San Jose and catch a matinee of a Broadway, one of the Broadway shows that was touring, come home and cook dinner with the family, you know, and then probably watch a movie. So it's it's kind of like some, something that would be very, very chill, I think, yeah. um, where we'd get to go out. I am a huge Broadway fan. Um, so getting to do something Broadway related with my kid, with my oldest kid, is is always a um, big goal of mine. And then something very chill in the evening that allows me to hang out with my husband, my seven-year-old and my two-year-old sort of collectively where we're watching a movie or doing some artwork. The kids are really big into Play-Doh right now. <laughs> so playing with Play-Doh with my kids, um, something that connects me back to my my sort of authentic self where I'm you know I'm not a professor in that moment I'm not even just like mom I'm just kind of a person who's like hanging out with the people that I love and doing some sort of activity and you know while we're doing that probably listening to show tunes or something <laughs> like that something very nerdy like that but but yeah I think anything that connects me back to to Broadway is is sort of the ideal dancing to Broadway going to see a Broadway show listening to show tunes all of that that hearing my kids singing to Broadway shows, all of that feels sort of like an old part of my life because I used to do musical theater in high school and college. And the opportunity to engage in that now feels very separate from like all of the sort of hustle and bustle of the rest of my life. So that always make that always makes me feel like myself and makes me feel very happy and sort of restored when I get to listen to Broadway. All right, for sure. So like you touched on cooking for your family. What is one of your favorite dinners to make? Um, I would say one of my favorite things that I make, I make really good lasagna. <laughs> um, I think my, my family will attest to that as well. Um, I also make some uh, baked chicken that that my family likes a lot. Um, and baking cakes, I think, mm. is probably my, my daughters are both old enough now to really help with baking things and so it is kind of our fun and my my two-year-old um will occasionally just walk up to me and say bake a cake please <laughs> just out of nowhere and if we've got the time I'm always like yeah why not like what else are we gonna do this sounds fun so so yeah I think those are probably my favorite things and since we've been um quarantined I actually have a, a number of cookbooks that that we're sort of working our way through and just sort of picking things and saying do we have ingredients to make this let's try it let's see if it comes out okay because it's just fun to have that sort of experience that's awesome yeah like Masterclass came out with a subscription for college students for one dollar for the whole year recently oh, nice. so I downloaded that my friends plugged me and told me about it and I want to learn more about cooking I, I could cook a little bit but obviously not enough to when I move out to be on my own so right right um, I'm going to be looking at Gordon Ramsay and all those other chefs over there oh that's nice to see if I can make something nice but I've always like my favorite dessert is chocolate chip cookies um, oh yeah I like cakes yeah. too but cookies is at the top for me so yeah I have I have to admit that you know I, I talk about baking cakes and like I like yellow cake and like pound cake and stuff like that I really do not like chocolate cake and Ooh. I know that makes me like I know everyone is always like how do you not like chocolate cake it's I, I don't honestly know why <laughs> but it's like I will make everyone in my house likes chocolate cake so I make chocolate cake for my husband's birthday for my daughter's birthdays um, and then like for my like and then that's basically it like I'll make it specifically for special occasions for them and be like okay you know that's <laughs> you guys enjoy it but like I can't I can't eat it <laughs> um so yeah chocolate chip cookies are definitely my my husband already knows like for my birthday like he should get you know lemon bars or chocolate chip cookies and that's much better for me yeah that sounds wonderful yeah so if you could only listen to one artist for the rest of your life who would that be and why 
Oh, this is this is easy. Anyone who's taken a class with me already knows, as I have bored people talking about this, it would absolutely 100% be Green Day. Mm. Um, I love I see Green that Day. Yeah, I know. It, it always <laughs> surprises people. They have been my um, favorite band since I was in middle school, which is a number of years ago. Uh, I was actually supposed to see them on tour, uh, and it got postponed because of coronavirus. They were doing this Hell Omega tour uh, with Green Day, Fall Out Boy, and Weezer, uh, which I was super excited about. But um, I just love, I love Green Day, and the more I learn about Billy Joe Armstrong, the lead singer uh, and songwriter, I understand why that connection is there. To go back to Broadway, Billy Joe Armstrong kind of grew up taking voice, you know, he's like this, you know, pop punk rocker and all of these things but he grew up taking voice lessons he loved broadway musicals and so a lot of the kind of um, musicality of green day is connected to sort of a, a kind of crunchier louder sort of broadway sound in my in my mind at least and so i mean that yeah that that band means so so much to me i've seen them a few times on tour and then, you know, without revealing too much about my age, I can say that American Idiot came out when I was in college and that album just like changed my life. Like it absolutely was just such a uh, cultural, like a cultural mic drop when that album came out, like in the wake of George W. Bush, in the wake of, you know, September 11th, sort of as we were still grappling as a nation with what that looked like. So I think that they, you know, they're they're older than me, but but not, you know, not wildly older than me. And so hearing these these people working through their emotions and thinking about what politics looks like and what it means to them and then seeing them age and like now they've got kids who are, you know, like college mm. age or, you know, elementary school age and all of these things, seeing them become like for real, for real adults with like families and wives and, you know, how their lives have changed and how my life changes. That Green Day always feels like they're just slightly ahead of me um, as far as their their sort of uh, emotional maturity. And so it's cool to to listen to them. I, I just love them so much. Yeah, I actually haven't heard much of Green Day. I used to watch wrestling a lot like in elementary school and middle school. And, oh, nice, and yeah. When, when I was watching like SmackDown and Raw, they used to play Green Day theme music a lot, like for WrestleMania and oh, stuff. Oh, that's cool. So I feel like I've heard yeah. a couple of the songs, but I'm not very tapped into the rock section. Is Are they considered rock? Mm-hmm. They're considered kind of like pop punk, but you can find them in the rock section yeah. for sure. Yeah. And it's funny because um, you mentioned, you know, not being tapped in. I actually taught um, a Green Day song in a senior seminar at Santa Clara uh, called 21st Century Protest mm. Literature. And in that class, um, I taught the song American Idiot. And most of the students who, you know, were just at this point maybe you know, four years older than you, something, something like that. They all graduated in 2019. They brought up that they, like, they'd always kind of heard the song in the background, but they never paid attention to the lyrics. And I think that's kind of the cool thing about Green Day is that a lot of people have sort of heard the songs. And then if you listen to, if and you're like, okay, this sounds fine. Or like, oh yeah, I like the guitar, whatever it is. But then you actually listen to the lyrics and you're like, whoa, they're like actually like on something <laughs> here. Like they're really like talking about um, this cultural realm and trying to make sense of it and being like these political actors and they're from Oakland. So they're, oh, you know, they're, really? they're like, yeah, like they're wow. local and, uh, and they all still live out in Oakland. Like I've never run into them, but like they're, <laughs> they're just out there, you know, hanging out in, in Oakland as opposed to like having moved to LA or someplace yeah. um, that you'd expect, you know, big celebrities to live. But yeah, this, this idea that the more you pay attention to what this they're saying, the more you, recognize wow they're actually they you can imagine them as sort of voices of their generation which i think is really great that's amazing yeah i, I, I might look more into them and you and more into the rock Absolutely. scene like i think late senior year i just tried to dabble in rock a little bit but the only song like i really enjoyed <laughs> this might be corny but it was uh smells like teen spirit i really oh, no not at all <laughs> i really like that uh, like the musicality the drums of that song yeah. and like the way it, it starts mellow and then they just take off and turn up <laughs> i really like oh, that we song. could we could talk about this forever i, I will say that like my, my i have a brother my youngest brother is um in his uh 20s let's see how old is joshua he is 23 now he is a huge fan of nirvana and mm, like that yeah, whole yeah. yeah that whole moment and it's interesting to hear him talk about because i was you know 
I was a, a you know a young person when they first came out, and the way their music still matters so much, I think it is is huge. And Dave Grohl, of course, now is in Foo Fighters and all of this stuff. And yeah, just just this sort of incredible way. A lot of this music from the '90s, I think, still resonates for for young people, high school students, college students today. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. So the last question I have for you is. If you can have dinner with any person in history, dead or alive, who would that be and what would the conversation consist of? Um, I've thought about this um, for a while because I I feel like there are a few people I would name, but, but right now I really feel like James Baldwin is my answer. Um, and for a few reasons. I think the fact that James Baldwin, um, he... He was such a prolific writer. He was so good at every genre of writing. Um, it's just so impressive to me. Um, I would love to pick his brain a little bit more about how he found his inspiration in writing. Um, I think also this fact that Baldwin um, was both black and queer during a time where both of those identities were marginalized, but he never sort of shied away from either of those identities. Like he was very much both of those things all at once and felt all aspects of what that looked like and what that meant. That to me is really, really powerful. And I think that has influenced the way a lot of other people understand themselves. I think that Baldwin's writing additionally was so forward thinking. Like Baldwin died in the 80s but it was like he he already knew what was coming in his writing. He understood the 21st century, even though he never made it to the 21st century. Right. And I would love to hear more from him about how he was able to see so clearly what so many of us missed, how he understood the nature of race and politics in the United States with such clear-eyed wisdom and insight. And then I'd like to ask him, like, well, what do you think now, now that you're seeing all of this, now that you see... Trump as president now that you see that a black man you know was president um now that you've seen you know marriage equality now that you've seen all of these kinds of things that you sort of anticipated in some way or another how do you understand what we're going through what do, what hope can you, can you offer us any hope for the future what do you imagine you know 20 30 years looks like from now because i just think he he just understood, not only did he understand it, but he could articulate it so well and so meaningfully that I feel like we, I think one of the reasons people are so drawn to him now, you see his quotes on signs at protests, you see the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, uh, you see If Beale Street Could Talk being made into a movie recently. People are really eager for these kinds of conversations that Baldwin was already having and, and trying to think about how the worlds that he set up are still relevant to, to our understanding of today. Yeah, and when my, like my introduction to Black authors uh, was very intriguing and James Baldwin was one of my favorite when I first like, got introduced to that realm. And for me, like one of the quotes from The Fire Next Time that is very prominent in my life and like I, I really believe is that as a black person, and this is from society standpoint, as a black person, you are not expected to aspire to excellence. You are expected to make peace with mediocrity. Right. And right. I've always felt that subconsciously going through academic that my academics in elementary school, middle school, you know, everything and being one of the top students, um, I always like felt as though it was a surprise that I was one of the top students being black. So like it wasn't expected of me to do those types of things and have those awards and those accomplishments. So absolutely, seeing that I wasn't the only one that was aware of this type of, I guess, systemic oppression or just that idea that you're not supposed to make it, that I wasn't the only one that was thinking like that was very like, I guess, eye opening. And, and it made absolutely. me see that, you know, it's, it's important that we make this path for ourselves and try to help each other and uplift each other, as we've stated multiple times in this episode. Because, like, if we don't do it, nobody else will, right? So Absolutely. Yeah, I think Absolutely. James Baldwin is a perfect choice for, for your uh, dinner, for sure. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, listeners. That concludes this episode. And thank you, Dr. Danielle Morgan, for coming on. Uh, we appreciate it. It's truly a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.